You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. 1 Samuel chapter 7 this morning. We are working our way through the Old Testament. And I really believe that we would, we would quickly work through this portion of Scripture. If you recall, last week we, we started 1 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, and I thought we would just move through it and be done. I find myself going back there again this week. And I, I believe I'll be there again next week and maybe the following week. So at that rate, we should finish the Old Testament by the year 2050. All right, that's where we're headed but we're going to take our time this morning. And my prayer is that um, as we go through this passage again in 1 Samuel 7, that the Lord will use it in the lives of our church corporately and as individuals. I see a lot of fanning out there. Who's hot this morning? Not in a way that I'm just hot, but I mean like, like your temperature is warm. Okay. Who's cold this morning? Somebody cold out there? Okay, Caitlin, can you sit by Roxanne? Because she's really, really warm. Let's turn the fans up a little bit. I'm sorry, it should be cooler in here. Um, I don't know why that is. Dan had the Sunday school lesson, a lot of hot air and heat in here. And so it was, I'm sure that's part of it. Great lesson this morning. They've all been great. 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse number 1. And the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Aminadab in the hill and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And came to pass while the ark abode in Kerjith-Jerim, that the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And let me just help you uh, to remind you this morning, we find ourselves in a, in a portion of Israel's history that the ark had been taken, they had experienced defeat, and now for twenty years the ark is back in the land. If you recall, their idea toward the ark originally when this happened was that this was their lucky charm. This, is, this was their ace in the hole. If they had God's furniture, God would deliver them. And they were defeated. God allows them to be defeated to show them something about himself. The ark comes back now. It's been in the land for 20 years. And unfortunately for the children of Israel, they're ex- still experiencing bondage. And in their hearts and lives, they know that something is amiss. They are God's people, and yet they are not living as God had intended them to live. And we mentioned this last week, so, so many of us in our own lives, we're believers, we know we're saved. We know that God has saved us, and we know the life that he has for us, but there seems to be times in our lives when we're just sick of ourselves. We, we know we're living a life that's not what we were intended to live by God's grace, and this is where they find themselves. They're tired of themselves. They're tired of the situation. They want more. And the Bible says that they lamented after or they cried unto the Lord. And in this passage last week, we saw the fact that they practiced true repentance. True repentance. They, they first hated their own sin. For God's people this morning, again, we have to come to the point when we just don't hate everybody else's sin or those who sinned against us. But we must hate all sin, especially our own sin. We have a tendency in our own lives to toy with it, 
to excuse it, um, to allow it to exist because we're doing this, that, and the other thing. But we must remember this morning that God hates sin. He hates all sin. He hates our sin. And we as God's people must get to the point this morning where we see our sin for what it is. We must live in the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we must understand this morning that my pet sin, the sin that I enjoy, the sin that I excuse, the sin that I delight in, my guilty pleasure, is exactly the sin that nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. I like what Stephen Charnock said when he talked about our sin and having victory over sin. He was talking to his congregation and he said, how is it that we can delight in a sin, this sin, that nailed our best friend to a tree? And so this morning, true repentance involves a hatred of sin, our own sin. And then it involves confession. As we read on, the children of Israel say, Lord, we have sinned against you. And when we see our sin for what it is in God's sight, we understand that we must confess it. We must agree with him. God, you are right. This is wrong. I confess this to be sin. And not just the sin we get caught on. Not just the sin people see. But a confession that says, God, search me, try me, know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. And things that men and women don't see, Lord, I see them, you see them. I confess them. I want to be thoroughly right with you. When we get to this point, we are more concerned with our relationship with God than our reputation with anyone. We want to confess. We want to be right. And then there's a new obedience. Let's read on now in verse number 3. And Samuel spoke unto the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Astaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord. And serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Astroth and serve the Lord only. This new obedience. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And what they're saying in that, in that situation was, Lord, water is essential to life. What we're doing here is far more important than our own lives. We want you more than anything. They're serious. They've repented. They've confessed. And now this new obedience. And they fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. Now there's a new relationship. They're no longer dabbling in religious magic. They are now walking by faith. And, and we know this instinctively as believers this morning. That when we confess, we forsake, we confess, we repent, we make things right, we start to obey God, we have this new relationship with God, we know that feels right. There's a sweetness in knowing that a relationship with God is right. It, it, all things are as they should be. We, we have a saying in our house that we've adopted. I don't know if it's a line of clothing or or I don't know what it is, but it says life is good. As we look at what we have, what we enjoy, life is good. And for the believer who has experienced true repentance, 
true confession with God and others, a new obedience, we pillow our head and we know that life truly is good. It's sweet. It's sweet. And so we read this story, and, and here is Israel now. Now they're walking by faith. They're good. They're good with God. They're good with others. And here's my temptation. My temptation to think is this, that after we find them being thoroughly right with God, after we find them walking by faith, they're, they're doing the right thing. The next verse should say, and they all lived happily ever after. Because now they're walking by faith. Now they're obeying God. Now they're right with the Lord. But can I tell you something? That's not verse 7. It's almost shocking. They have gathered in Mizpah. The nation is, is, it's a national revival. They are repentant. They're being right with God. And here's what verse 7 says. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Now understand something. The phrase went up against Israel, they are not coming to encourage them. They're not coming to say, God bless you Israelites, we've been waiting for the day that you got right, that you are thoroughly right with God, that you repented, that all is well between your soul and the Savior, and we are just coming up to congratulate you in this newfound obedience and relationship. That's not why they've come up. A matter of fact, as we look at the text, it says that they gathered together, and when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Why? Because they were coming to battle against them. Here they were doing right. Here they were being obedient. And it's not all is happily ever after. Now there is trouble. Now there is turmoil. Now there is a fight. And I want to talk about this this morning because so often in our lives, we have this idea in our head that if we live the good life, if we obey the Lord, if we follow Him, if we make things right, then that good life equals happiness, joy, success, and all of your wildest dreams will come true. That's a problem. It's a problem. And so this morning, I want to I look at this idea that obedience just naturally brings blessing. And I'll qualify those things as we go along this morning. Um, we have a tendency in our hearts and minds to just equate doing right with God abundantly blessing us. And, and this idea is not new. Do you remember in the Old Testament, disciples were talking to the Lord, and he walks by a blind man, and they say, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And their idea was, the reason he is suffering, the reason he is struggling, is because somebody did wrong. Remember what the Lord said? Neither. Neither. But that was their mentality. Later on, we have the story of the rich man, and he comes to Christ and he says, you know, Lord, what, what must I do to have eternal life? And the Lord gives him a number of things, and he says, I've done all of those things. And Jesus, recognizing that he was covetous, said, okay, one thing you lack, sell everything you have and follow me. And the Bible says the man went away very sorry because he had much riches. And then Jesus says to the disciples, Scarcely can a rich man make it to heaven. And you remember the response? They say, Lord, who then 
can be saved. And they say that because during their time, they thought the same thing. That if I am doing, if I'm being blessed, if I have goods and riches and wealth and prosperity, then God is obviously pleased with me. That was not the case. It is nothing new. We even see it in our own um, culture today. In North America, we hear preaching from men like Joel Osteen, women like Joyce Myers. They say anything good? Yeah, they say some good things. The problem is, is when they talk about the gospel and they make it a prosperity gospel that says this, if you obey God and you have faith in God, then he will make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And my friend, that is the furthest thing from the truth. It's the furthest thing from the truth. And so this morning I want to tackle this issue because I'm shocked as I read Israel's life here, and it's, they do right, and now trouble comes to their life. There are several problems with believing that the good life, the life of faith, is trouble-free. Here's the first one. The first problem is this. It, it fails to take the totality of Scripture. There are portions of Scripture that indicate that when we do right, we are blessed. But this story in itself tells us Israel is doing right, and as they're doing right, the Philistines come against them. Not only that, we have smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament, the story of a fellow named Job. Or some would call him Job. All right? Here is Job. Job was a righteous man. And the Bible says that this righteous man suffered greatly. When we have this mindset, it's problematic because it fails to take in consideration the, the totality of Scripture. Not only that, it produces discouragement defeat among God's people, making them weak and anemic. If I, if I buy into the idea that whatever I do right, God will just richly bless me and all will go my way, then what happens when that doesn't happen? What happens is I'm discouraged, I'm defeated, there's disillusionment. What's going on here? And there's only two people you can blame. Yourself, for not having enough faith, or God. It's problematic. Number three, the problem with this attitude is we fail to understand that obedience oftentimes has a high cost. Can I tell you something this morning as a believer? Let's just be honest. There are times when you will obey God and it will cost you something. There are times when you want to do right, and if you do right, you will be passed up on the promotion. There are times when you decide to do right, and if you do right, you might just lose your job. There are times when you say, God, I want to please you. I believe I'm thoroughly right with you. This is the direction you have me to take. And when you do that act of obedience, you might lose some friends. You might not be included in that circle that you want it to be included in. That is, my friend, the fact of the matter. There are times that obedience comes at great cost. Listen to these words. And Jesus was obedient even unto death. Death. There's a real danger for us this morning as believers. Because, because, and, and we know, hey, we're not, we're not the prosperity gospel people. We know that 
But innately in all of us, we have this tendency to think, as long as I do right, God, it will be sunshine and roses. Listen, Jesus never sung the song, you know, I promise you a rose garden. That wasn't him. He didn't do that. There, there's this mentality among, among evangelicals today. Even when talking to people about the gospel and trusting Christ, we want to tell people things like this. Listen, just add Jesus to your life, and if you do, it will all be okay. Don't worry about the future. Don't worry about your past. Don't worry about your sin. Just add Jesus, and it's okay. And we try to, to sort of keep them from the reality of the Christian life. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus said, I'm going to promise you some things. I promise that you will have trials, tribulation, and suffering. Christ never front-loaded the gospel with you get all these great things. He said, here's the reality of it. It's going to cost you something. No man goes to war without counting the cost. And this is not new in the New Testament. What did Paul say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12? He said, Yea, yes, all those that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You've you got to read the whole book, my friend. You've got to see the whole story. The apostles understood this. What does Peter say? 1 Peter chapter uh, 4, he says, Hey, brothers and sisters, my dearly beloved, listen, don't think of it as a strange thing when you have trials. Like something weird happened to you. Peter says you ought to expect those things. And when we have this idea that I I do right, and every time I do right, God will just bless me, we are setting ourselves up for failure. That's not reality. And so this morning, I just want to take a few minutes, and I, I want to correct this idea and reevaluate our thinking about obedience and blessing. Christian, why do you obey God? Why do you want to be right? Why do we repent and confess and make things right and have new obedience in this relationship? Why do you do that? And the truth is, for many of us, we do that because we want something in exchange. But can I give you a proper motivation for obedience? Here's the first. He's God. He's God. And whatever he says as God, as his creation, we are to obey. We obey God this morning not because of what it might produce in our lives. We are to obey him this morning because he is God. He is the Holy One. He is worthy of all. He makes the rules. He is God. I obey Him because He's God. And not only that, I obey Him because as I look at redemption this morning, this God died for me. For God to love the world, listen to me, Jesus Christ died for me. 
He shed his blood for me. He paid the price that I could not pay. And I am to be obedient to him because he has redeemed me. He bought me with his blood. He has purchased me. He has redeemed my soul from hell. And that idea of redemption this morning for every believer should say within our hearts, God, because you did that for me. You purchased me not with gold or silver or corruptible things like that, but with your precious blood. Because of that, Lord, I want to obey you. My love for you should motivate me to obey you. So we should obey because he is God and because he's redeemed us. But let me help you understand this morning about the idea of blessings. Because obedience does equal blessing. But let me ask you a question. When you think of blessings this morning, if I say, man, that couple was just greatly blessed, what's the first thing that you think of? What did they get? Dave, what did they get? A house. That's a blessing. Man, they, were just, they just got a house. What else? What? Health? What's that? Uh, you're, you're getting too spiritual. I mean, I'm not looking for spiritual answers right now. I'm looking for the first thought that I have when I think about Bruce. Yeah, money. We got stuff. Most of us, and I know some of you are far further along than I am. That's great. But the first thought is, when we're blessed, we get the stuff. We get the money. We get the things. Now listen to me. God does give good things. Every good gift comes from him. And we in this hemisphere are richly blessed in material things. We do have good things, and God does give them. There's no doubt about it. I mean, listen, we're in Chatham. We have a target now. We have good things. I mean, (laughs) have you been there yet? You've not been there. The first day we were there twice. Twice. Morning and evening. We've been back several times. We're applying for a card there. It's a terrible thing, all right? It's a blessing. Best things haven't yet in years. Walmart people, I love you, it's good, it's all good, but, but Target's really cool. It's a great blessing, right? Chatham, who would have thunk? We're really becoming a Starbucks. A Starbucks. That's a good, amen. Dennis went there the other day, and he's all excited for Starbucks. He gets in at 9 o'clock, and they're closed. Store's open, Starbucks closed. And he swore a couple times and lost it. It was bad, all right? <laughs> I don't think he did that. But certainly we enjoy those things. But how often our default setting is this. When we think of obedience equal, equal blessing, almost always we think about the stuff. I do it. I do it all the time. God just blessed me with this. And sometimes he does. But there are greater blessings to obedience. And we must be reminded this morning. There's the blessing of peace. Of peace. When I obey my God, there is a peace that passes all understanding. And no matter what the situation, if the Philistines are coming to Mizpah, there's peace. Because I know my God is in I've obeyed him. There's a peace that passes all understanding. There's guidance. Isaiah 48 talks about this. Verse 18, there's guidance. When I obey the Lord, He guides my steps. He guides my path. We're not smart enough to know the next step. We don't know the end from the beginning. We can't figure it out. But when I obey, God blesses with the idea that He will guide me. 
he blesses with the fullness of his spirit. But as I obey the spirit, as I yield to him, I have the power of the spirit of God in my life. The words I speak, the actions I do, it's a blessing in the truest sense of the word. And above all, we talk about obedience bringing blessing. What about the blessing of having communion with God? What I'm telling you this morning is this. So often we read the scripture and we really do believe they did right, therefore, happily ever after. But I want to tell you something. Sometimes the blessings of God look nothing like that. They go much deeper than that. They're greater than that. And we can't be sidetracked with the stuff that is passing away. I've been looking at different scriptures to try to, to memorize larger portions of scripture for my, for my own well-being. And I've been stuck in the last week or so in Romans chapter 8. Like I said, you were there too, studying some things earlier. Romans 8, going from Romans 8, 28, all the way to the end, verse 39. And, and Romans 8, 28, is a great passage. We, we all... And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose, to whom He did predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Great, great chapter. And as you go through, what you realize is that, that Paul is telling people, listen, I want you to know something. Nothing can separate us from the love of God and the love of Christ. It, it's fantastic. And he goes on and says, no one can accuse us, you know, no one can bring anything against us. And then there's a portion in Romans chapter 8, verse 36, that has always seemed to me problematic. It's, it's almost disjointed. Uh, let's just turn there, if, if, if I can share. You don't mind if I share with you, do you? You're stuck here anyways. We have a few minutes. I know I ask you, but the doors are shut. It would be rude to leave at this point. So, so bear with me. Uh, Romans 8. And if you would look, just look at uh, verse number 36. You saw how great it is that God, the living God, will, nothing will separate us. He gets to verse 36 and says this, As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And I'm telling you, and I know some of you are way past me on this. I get this. But for years, it just seemed like Paul, that thought process is real disjointed there. I mean, we're all excited that nothing will separate us from God's love. And then you throw in, oh, by the way, like a bunch of sheep who are killed all the day long. It's like, man, what a downer Paul is. He's leading us along this great path. And so I read that again this last week, and I thought, this really, I, I'm, not, I'm not following completely his thought process here. And as I stopped about that verse and just thought for a few moments, God just reminded me of, of Hebrews chapter 11, the, the great chapter of faith, which is really another encouraging chapter about, man, how good God is and how we can't be separate and how God blesses. And then I remembered that the first person that Hebrews chapter 11 talks about is Abel, who is blessed for his faithfulness. Remember, Abel does right. He does the right sacrifice. And you know what happens to Label? Label. He got hit with the leg of a table, all right? Abel has his head smashed in. This is how God starts off this great chapter of faith about how we're blessed when we seek Him, the first example He gives us is Abel. And Abel didn't fare well. And it's like, okay, okay, the writer of Hebrews, which probably was not Paul, it was somebody else, uh, the writer of Hebrews goes on and he says, 
man, look at these great stories. And we're like, yes, how good God is and how he delivers. And this is wonderful. And then we get down to Hebrews verse 36 and it says, And others who were obedient, who loved God, who did right, and others faced mockings, scourgings, imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were afflicted, they were tormented. Wow. What's, that's, that's the reward for following God? And so we're, we're faced with death and destruction. On, on with social media, I'm always the guy who gets caught up in the ten things you did not know, right? And I have to click on there and find out what they were. Last week they had some about the ten things you didn't know about the Romans, which was really fascinating. The Romans built 40, no, 57,000 miles of roads. The Romans, the Roman Empire. And that might not mean anything to you, but the United States has about 46,000 miles of roads. That's what the Romans did. The Romans would come home in the evening and the men would kiss their wives on the mouth. Not to be romantic, but to see if she was drinking wine all day long. And she was partying. It's true. True. Um, isn't that fascinating? I mean, I would click there all the time. And, and so then I found this one about the top ten plagues of all time. I start reading this, and it's like, you know, Black Death, 14th century, bubonic plague. Do you know how many people died in Black Death? Between 75 and 200 million people. Can you, can you believe that? That's a lot. And then I read about influenza, the flu, 1918. You know how many people were killed by the flu in 1918? 50 million. And then it went on, malaria. I mean, it just went on and on and on. It's like, man, alive. And you know what I realized? I realized I'm going to die. Right? We're all going to die. It was not malaria or black death. It's a heart. It's, we're, we're all going to die. And so I'm thinking these thoughts. I, I go to Hebrews, and then I go back to Romans, and, and, it, and it starts to dawn on me what Paul is saying here. Um, because right after he makes that statement about, hey, we're just like sheep that are killed all day long, he says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And and Paul didn't get it wrong. This is not disjointed in his thought process. He's telling us the truth. He's saying, listen to me. The love of Christ, nothing will separate us. We might die by persecution and famine and sword and all these things, but it's okay because... We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And that's, that's, that's the word is Hoover. It's, it's overwhelming conquering. It's like, I just didn't conquer. I mean, we really did it. We conquered. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And what he's saying there is this. It doesn't matter. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Why? Because the whole prize, no matter what happens, if you're obedient and you suffer, if you're obedient and you're materially blessed, if you're obedient and persecution comes, the prize is Him. It's Him. Because we're all going to die. 
And yet we are more than suffer. We're more than we're more. We are suffering. We are more than conquerors because the prize is Jesus. Paul knew exactly what he was talking about, and so we can face all those things. And so, believer in Christ, I want you to understand something. We are obedient this morning. Obedience does bring blessing. Maybe not the blessing we think, but it does bring blessing. But we are obedient because He is God. Because he has redeemed us. And because the ultimate prize of our obedience is not stuff. It's him. It's, it's him. And that's the whole point of Romans 8.28, right? All things work together for good. Do you want to know what the good is? Read the next verse. We are, we are, we are predestined to be conformed to his image. It's always about Jesus. And so my friend... Come hell or high water, it does not matter. I obey God and whatever happens, I am more than a conqueror because nothing can separate me because the prize is Christ and someday I will sit at his feet and enjoy him forever. Forever. There is no victory in life without battle. None. None. There are no mountaintops without valleys. And there is no growth without struggle. And, and so when we read the story and we think it should say happily ever after, let me make this caveat. It really does. Well, wait a minute. The Philistines came and they came to Mizpah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because we are more than conquerors. We will be victorious. The truth of the matter is this. Every believer who knows Christ, I've got news for you. We win. And we win big time. And the prize is eternal. And it is Jesus. How can you go wrong? Hey, we can obey. No matter what happens, it's okay. It's, go- it's all good. And so, my friend, this morning, if you're obedient, if you're trying to be right and do right. You want to honor God today. You want to love Him and you're seeking to do that. And you've confessed and you're this new obedience, new relationship. And trouble comes. Don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged. We can still obey. And we will still be blessed. Because in the end, the blessing is Him. Don't be weary. Don't be weary. Let me just quote Lewis as he talks about the Chronicles of Narnia. He's talking to the children about the death of their family. If you know the story, it's a great analogy. He says, yep, you you certainly did die. And then he says this as he closes the book. He says, someday we will begin uh, chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. My friend, be obedient, because we win. And the truth is, for the believer, after every story, no matter what happens, we live happily ever after have a word of prayer this morning.